0: Well, Seven Mile Road, it's good to be with you. Um, This is actually the last time I'll be with you in our makeshift studio in our old offices. We're in the process of moving out, and so it feels like the end of an era. To those of you who've been tuning in with us through the COVID season, hanging out with us with my backwards books, serving as a backdrop, thanks thanks for being a part of the journey with us. Um, This morning we continue... In a, uh, ...in a series that we're calling Citizens of Another Kingdom. As you might be aware, just maybe, we had an election this last week. Um, and in the midst of a, what is a contentious election season... We have seen fit to take the two weeks before and the two weeks after to kind of create a, a relational container together as a body to talk about what does it look like for us to take seriously our citizenship in another kingdom such that we would look and respond and act and speak differently in this moment. And as you know, the, the, the election this week, it, it didn't immediately produce a clear winner. Um... What it did show is something that has been increasingly clear in our country. Uh, It was true in 2016 as well as 2020 that there were a growing number of what is called landslide counties. And ultimately what has been called the evaporation of purple America. That increasingly, as a country, we are coming apart such that there are red counties and blue counties and seemingly never the twain shall meet, that our world increasingly is dividing, that in this moment we are being pulled apart, we are actually clustering in groups that think just like us down the line, oftentimes right along political lines. This phenomenon in some ways has been heightened by the algorithms on our phones that you click on one news item and that will kind of begin to inform the technical universe uh, that you like these sorts of things and you'll be more likely to keep clicking if you keep getting fed these sorts of things. So Our phone algorithms set set us off in a particular vein or a particular avenue, being reinforced to think in the same ways and then tribalization and clustering, and we all connect. And all of a sudden, what is left is division and dismissal, mistreatment, assumptions of the worst of those, those people out there that disagree with me in some way, but they probably live in some space, run in some different vein, and certainly have a different algorithm feeding them their information. You see, we're in a a unique moment that has, has produced division wide scale. But there's this interesting reality that you and I, if we have said yes to Jesus as our, as our Savior and as our King, we actually have a hometown that is not of this world. Like, what we are made for, our home city is is a make is, is a city whose maker is God and whose situatedness is in heaven and we live far from home, so much so that have you ever had this experience that you've traveled far from home and you've been in some place where you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, and people will scratch their heads and kind of has a quizzical look and they'll say something along the lines of, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> Being citizens of another kingdom should so generate something different in us that in a moment marked by increasing divisiveness and tribalization, that the body of Christ should so look and feel different that people would scratch their heads and quizzically say, you're not from around here, are you? This is something distinctly different. And so to that end, as we continue to press into this series, I want to talk about what is our role in this space of division? How is it that the church, as citizens of a different kingdom, should look and feel different in a moment that is pulling us apart and putting us into tribes and pitting us against one another? And, and to that end, we're going we're to go to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at the first few verses of chapter 4. And what we're going to find is this, that we as the church are called to diligently protect unity. As we honor Jesus' sacrifice, that we actually need to diligently preserve and protect and hold on to the unity that has been delivered to us by Jesus. And so, as a result, in a sea of division, we of all people are a people that, that protect and tend to and diligently put our minds towards unity in a way that is otherworldly. And Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 is going to serve us really well to help us to understand what that looks like as a church. And and so just to give you a little bit of context, we're jumping right into the middle of a letter from Paul. I want us to be clear about what we're reading. Um, Ephesians 1 through 3 is Paul explaining the nature of the gospel to this church that he planted in Ephesus. And he's talking about all that Jesus has accomplished on their behalf. And as he's writing, particularly to a church in Ephesus that has blossomed and bloomed out of a combination of Jewish and Gentile Christians who have different customs and different understandings of the world. And in fact, the question of the New Testament is, is how Jewish do you have to become to be Christian? And it's causing division and struggle within the church. And here in Ephesus, you have a church that's made up of these different tribes that are trying to figure out what does it mean for us to live together as brothers and sisters? And so unity has been a theme as, as, as Paul is writing about what Jesus has accomplished. And now right in the middle of the book, there's a hinge where he's going to say, in light of all that Jesus has done, in the second half of the book, I want to talk about what now you do in response. And right there where he turns the corner, we're going to see that of primary emphasis is the call for the church that is experiencing widespread division to fight for and to preserve unity. And so we're going to situate right down in the hinge of this book, zoom in and make sense of of what does it mean for us to diligently protect unity in a sea of division. So please turn your attention to the scriptures with me. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3. They'll be on the screen there for you. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. The grass withers. Flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Brothers and sisters, we would be really wise, not just to pay attention to and not just to learn from, but to submit ourselves to this living and trustworthy and eternal word. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace this is how paul makes his transition from exploring all that jesus has accomplished to talking about what is incumbent upon us as the body of christ to do in response and his hinge is, is actually a hinge that he is very accustomed to. You would, you would see it in some of his other letters. In the Greek, the first three words are the, these words, I therefore urge. You know, In the English, we read, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner. But those three words, I therefore urge. I plead with you in light of all that I've just told you. I therefore urge. This is how Paul often turns the corner. You could go to a place like Like 1 Thessalonians 4, and you would see those three words similarly connecting the theology that is delivered to the ethical standard that he's calling us to. Or you could go to Romans 12 and verse 1. After 11 chapters of exploring the power and the beauty of the gospel, Paul turns the corner by saying, I therefore urge. So, in light of what he said, what he's saying is, I'm about to plead with you that this is a natural outworking of all the glorious truth that I've just told you about King Jesus. And as he therefore urges us, he's going, to, he's going to call us to, as it were, walk in a manner worthy. He's saying, I'm urging you. And in the Greek, what he's literally saying, when he says, walk in a manner worthy. He's saying to, to balance the scales. That I've just put all of this weight and beauty and the truth of what Jesus has accomplished in chapter one through three. And now I'm going to talk about what is going to happen on the other end of the scale as a result. It reminds me, When I was in the ninth grade and I was starting to play high school sports. I was being introduced to high school athletics and I remember the first time I went to the weight room at my high school as I was preparing for high school athletics and I was kind of a scrawny little guy wanting to get in shape and I remember that my favorite initial workout was this one machine it was it's a dip machine where you go down with your body but there was there was a pad under your knees and you put weights on the other end and i felt really special because as as i Put more weight on. It was the only exercise in the whole weight room that the more weight I put on, the better I got at it because it was a counterbalance. You put the weight on one end and it lifts your knees up as you go. And so I would just feel like I was killing it. You know, I'm like ripping these things out because the weight on the other end is buoying me. It's actually pushing me up. And in some ways, that's what's happening at this hinge As Paul has just dumped all of this beautiful gospel weight into the system for us. He has told us things. If we were to read Ephesians 1 through 3 straight through, we would hear things like, you were chosen before the foundations of the earth. God set his affection on you and adopted you as a child. If you've come to trust Jesus, it's because the heart of the Father was chasing you and that he resurrected you from the dead. Even though when you were born, you hated him and you resisted him, he pursued you and he won you over with his love and he has given you all the spiritual blessings of heaven. He has situated you in glory. He has actually united you with a family. Jesus, by his blood, tore down the walls of hostility that divided us and he made us one. And then at the conclusion of chapters 1 through 3, Paul is praying that now, because of that, in our union, in our resurrected power, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 1 through 3. Lots of weight on the other end. He's saying, in light of that, listen, on the other end, the activity on the other end, as if I put all of this weight on the dip machine and now you're experiencing this activity that you have this power that's informing this activity that you're called to. The question is, what does it look like for us to walk worthy? In Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore urge you, the counterbalance to all of this gospel weight, what does a community walking worthy look like? What does it mean to respond rightly to all that Jesus has done for us? What would it mean? And Paul actually is going to make an argument. And these first three verses and really the first six verses of Ephesians 4, if we had time for all of them, that we are being called to eagerly maintain unity. The structure of the first half of what is a very long sentence, what we're getting in verses one through three, the structure of this first half of this sentence, uh, it, it actually says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And then verse 2, which we'll come back to, is going to tell us how we're going to go about it. But verse 3 actually gets to the heart of it, saying, and, and this is, the, the structure is building towards this actually being what walking worthy looks like. So he's saying, I'm counterbalanced. I therefore urge you, because of all I've told you, to in these ways, verse 2, do this thing. So what I'd like to do is take verse 3 first, and then we'll take verse 2 second. Verse 3 is Paul's statement of how do we walk worthy in response to the weight of the gospel as a community. And what he says in verse 3 is this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager literally means diligent. Put your mind towards it. Work towards protecting or preserving the unity. When he says maintain unity, tereo literally means to keep, to protect, to make sure it's in good working order. And then he says to to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, when he says unity of the spirit, he's talking about possession. He means whose is it? This unity belongs to the spirit. And in fact, that's why we are to guard it. Or to keep it. Let me explain it to you like this. When I was in seminary in Boston, my wife and I moved up there. Um, Ashley and I moved to the Northeast, and she got a job as a teaching assistant, and she was making $18,500 annually. And that's what we were gonna live on while we were in seminary. So we weren't exactly sure how we were gonna make that work. We had a free place to stay for our first semester. And then we were figuring out, uh, well, we don't know what we're gonna do on the other end. And we actually stumbled into a relationship with a couple that was just about to move away for a semester who had a beautiful home and said, would you do a long-term uh, house-sitting gig for us? Would you take care of our home? And we literally met them and 48 hours later, we were going to move into their home and they were going to leave. It was God's provision in a grand way. But they gave us a tour of their home two days before we were about to move in. It was this beautiful two-story, kind of New England style, clappered home. And and they walked us through and they showed us some things. And they were saying, listen, this dining room, we just had the carpet redone. We want you to be really careful in here. Uh, we're a little bit uncomfortable with th- this is our grand living room. We're gonna, we gonna—we may just leave the heat off in this portion of the building. And we took the tour. And, and by the time we moved in, we realized this house is precious to these people. They don't really know us. They're letting us live here. This is God's provision. And do you know that for the next six months, the couple of rooms and the pieces of furniture they were concerned about we did not step foot in them or touch them. And, and, and the last week before they moved back, we were just so grateful to have had a place to live, to have had God provide for us in this way. The last week before they moved back, we cleaned that house in a way that it had never, since the day it had been constructed, it had never experienced this sort of treatment. Ashley with a toothbrush was scrubbing grout on kitchen counters. And the reason because we had been entrusted with something that was really lovely and valuable, that was not ours, and we were to to tend to it and to care for it. it. It was something that was entrusted to us for a time that was not ours, and as a result, with incredible intensity, we were going to keep and tend to it. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, let me tell you, Jesus has done all of this on your behalf. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy? It's to tend to the unity of the Spirit. You see, the union that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit in the, in the body, it is a gift that was purchased with the blood of Jesus. And it is the Spirit's to give, it's the Spirit's to deliver, and it's not ours, and it is far more precious and otherworldly gift than a lovely home or, or a new car, whatever it is that you might think, wow, that's really valuable. This is something of another world of cosmic significance that cannot be generated in this world. Deep heart unity knit together like the Father and the Son and the Spirit experience perfect unity. The Holy Spirit has that gift to give to humanity. And it's a gift to the church in light of what Jesus has done. And what Paul is saying is, if you're going to walk worthy, what you have to realize is this, that as the church As brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been entrusted with something that is precious. Will you eagerly maintain it? Like in the way that we are going, I'm not even going to walk in that room. I'm not going to touch that piece of furniture. I'm going to clean every square inch because this is not mine. And I want to make sure that I tend to it properly. What we are being called to as the church is to tend to this gift. Brothers and sisters knit together by the power of God. What would that look like for us to, to tend to that in a way that would cause the world to say, What is that? You can't be around, for, you can't be from around here because the natural, the natural world is marked by division, but here we're tending to something otherworldly. So, in our remaining minutes together, what I want to do is ask this question How do we do that? how do we do that? How do we rightly respond to Jesus's sacrifice and the gift of the Spirit? And how do we eagerly maintain this gift of unity? Well, right in the middle of these verses, verse two actually tells us how. It tells us how, and there's two things that we see. The first part of verse two says this, with all humility and gentleness, with all humility and gentleness. As Paul is beginning to spell out for the Ephesian church how they can respond rightly to the grace that's been shown them, he starts by saying with, with all humility. Not like a little bit, not a portion, not some here and there, but with all humility and gentleness. He starts with humility because the greatest threat, and brothers and sisters, please listen, hear this. The greatest threat to our unity And the greatest threat to our walking worthy of Jesus's sacrifice is pride. The reason Paul starts here, the reason he's explaining this is how you will preserve the unity of the Spirit is because pride breaks unity. As soon as we puff up, as soon as we have high-mindedness and haughty eyes, we break apart the gift that the Holy Spirit has given us in and through Jesus in this unity. That it's the equivalent of walking around in pride with high-mindedness and haughty eyes would be the equivalent of us moving into this home that this couple trusted to us and throwing big parties where people are dancing on their couches and, and wrecking the areas that they had been concerned about. That our pride actually comes in and breaks apart the most precious items that have been entrusted to us. Paul starts by saying all humility because he knows the alternative is so damaging. And interestingly, the opposite of gentleness would be to be rough or to be harsh. And where, where we let go of humility, being harsh and being rough quickly follows. Because the opposite of all humility and gentleness is pride and harshness. And can't you feel it? When you're high-minded and you have haughty eyes and you're in a disagreement within the community, when we're wrestling about political lines or the issues that are in play for us as a community, as soon as you are propped up feeling like, I've got it all together and all of these ignorant people can't quite figure it out, in that moment, your pride will convince you that I've got to set everyone straight. I see it clearly. No one else does. Those people over there, those People that are so misled, I've got to harshly or roughly set them straight. And we let go of humility and gentleness. And as a result, the gift that has been entrusted to us begins to break apart in our hands. This this path of being proud and rough, it is the fool's path to destruction. The Lord has told us very clearly in 1 Peter 5 that he opposes the proud. Incidentally, even if they're right even if they're right. If they, with the truth that they've been entrusted, begin to be high-minded and have haughty eyes and break apart the gift of the Spirit, God says, I will oppose them. God opposes the proud. This is the fool's path to destruction. And ultimately, I think politics in our current setting are so divisive because the way that the rhetoric and the conversation takes place is so far from the heart of Christ. Interestingly, these two words, humility and gentleness, the one time in 89 chapters in the gospels that Jesus describes his own heart, he calls himself, he he says that I am gentle and lowly in heart, which is related to these two words, gentle and lowly. The very heart of Jesus has all humility and all gentleness. The word for humility in this passage is a compound word that means lowliness of mind. I'm coming with a humility and openness that that I don't have everything figured out, that I'm coming to learn and to be teachable, to be hungry. And in that space, I will be gentle. This is the heart of Jesus. But ultimately, what we have in our political conversation is the opposite. That we actually live in a moment right now where negative partisanship is on a skyrocket. Do you know what this is? This is the idea of I find myself as part of a party, not primarily because of of what this party or this group or this tribe stands for, but because I am definitely not with them. Negative partisanship. And in fact, in recent polls in the United States, there is a very disturbing reality that the percentage of Americans that answered in the affirmative to this question has been steadily going up over the last several years. The question being, would our country be better off if significant numbers of people who thought like the opposing party were eliminated from our community. And, and the growing number of per- percentage of people are saying yes. In essence, what would be best for us is if they were just gone. If people that disagreed with me and thought differently than me were, were wiped away, that this is the epitome of high-mindedness, of haughty eyes, of thinking I haven't figured out, everybody else is, ha- is not. And they need to be they need to be ushered away that this is the divisive spirit that that ultimately is so far from the heart of Jesus to say, let's start in the space of being low-minded and gentle, fostering a connection that within, particularly within the body of Christ, that we ought to operate so differently when it comes to wrestling with these challenging issues before us. How do we actively preserve unity? How do we diligently protect the unity of the spirit? The first way is by with all humility and gentleness. The second is that we patiently endure. Did you see the second half of verse two? With patience, bearing with one another in love. If we're not proud and rough, what fills the space? If we lay down our pride and we're not rough, we're, we're low and gentle, then how do we connect? Well, we patiently endure. And the word for endure, uh, a, Uh, A prominent Greek scholars made an argument about this passage that 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 word for endure is in the middle voice and it should be, could be translated, hold ourselves back from one another. The idea being that we create space for each other right in the moment where we disagree. This church in Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles, significant disagreements about how the church should be ordered, what worship should look like, how we engage and what we value and what what uh, ceremonial laws we're going to uphold and which ones we're going to lay aside. Real tension. And in those spaces, what he's saying is, you need to create space for one another. You actually hold one another back. That we, we, we create space for the other. I, I heard a really important question from a friend recently that was posed in the midst of a, what is it, was a, an honest conversation about difficult issues. And I heard a friend say in this moment, is there space for me in the church if I don't see it the way, the way you see it? That's what Paul is addressing here. What he's saying is to patiently endure is to say there's room. Under the authority of Jesus, as we affirm Him, as we hold the first order realities of what we affirm, of what it means to be a Christian, there are a thousand Secondary issues that we're going to wrestle with, that we're going to try to make sense of. And in that space, the way that we actively preserve unity is we take a lowliness of mind, a gentleness, and then we say, and patiently, I'm going to make room for you. There's space. There's space for us to disagree and to live in the tension of that disagreement. But the last two words are really important of that phrase. Did you hear it? He said, with patience, bearing with one another in love we don't just patiently make space for one another and say, well, you can go over there and I'll go over here and we'll hold our different opinions and let's just continue to move on. It's not just make space because passivity here will allow bitterness to come in. We'll say, well, yeah, yeah, there's space for you. That's fine. But you just kind of go over there and believe your thing. And I'm going to... What he's saying is, no, no, no. We create space and then we cover over it with love. We actively love and serve one another. And in that place we begin to experience and preserve this otherworldly gift of the unity of the Spirit even in the spaces where we're struggling to make sense of our unity together. You see, we have to take up all humility and gentleness and then patiently make space for one another. And as we cover over and love in that space, we start to experience an otherworldly gift, the unity of the Spirit in our midst. As you you go on this journey, I I hope what you feel is that like Russian nesting dolls, we're drawing further and further in. We started by saying, a Jesus community shatters expectations because it doesn't look like what we think. And in the space of disagreement, what we do is we draw in and we develop convictions and we create space for one another. And then in that space where we start to wrestle with those convictions, right there, what we do is we do so with humility and with gentleness. And we... We actually make patient room for one another while we continue to love. And next week, what we're going to do is we're going to drill down to the final space and talk about and how do we actually select our words while creating space and loving one another in hopes that we as a community could be so marked out by something other, by something different. And so as we close, my invitation to you is to diligently protect unity. In honor of Jesus' sacrifice, brothers and sisters, don't ever lose sight of what Jesus has purchased for you, what he has accomplished on your behalf, That, that this effort to engage one another and experience unity is not just by our grit, that he has piled up all of the weight on the other side and said, I will support you. As you rehearse and remember what I've accomplished on your behalf, what you will find is that It is your joy and your privilege to walk into this unity that I've purchased for you with my blood. Would you please join me as I pray? So God, even as we prepare to worship, as we prepare to sing out, I just ask that right now, Holy Spirit, you would do your work to show us some areas of our lives, like shine the light of your word into us. Where have we been high-minded and haughty Where have we been proud and rough rather than humble and gentle? Would you show us? Perhaps there's conversations that we've had. There's people that we've dismissed. There's folks that we've distanced ourselves from. I pray that right now you would, by your spirit, you would usher into us a gentle and lowly spirit that looks like Jesus. And then, God, would you show us where we need to patiently endure not just wash our hands of people, but make space for them and love them right in the tension of our disagreement so that what we could experience would be an otherworldly unity given to us by the Holy Spirit. God, we're longing to be a different sort of kingdom, a different sort of people, a people who causes the world to scratch their head and say, you're not from around here, are you? Would you make that true of our body for your glory, God, for our joy, We're longing for that to be the case. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.